You could be seated. Well, we're in the book of Genesis, as Dave said. Genesis chapter 9 and 10 this morning. When I'm getting to know someone, I like to find out where they're coming from. My wife and kids tease me that I often ask the same few questions of people that I'm just meeting. I say, are you from Albuquerque? No? Okay, where are you from? What was your last city? What brought you to Albuquerque? Where did you grow up? Where are the stops on the map along the way? And as a pastor, or maybe just as a Christian, I also am curious What church tradition or traditions have you come from? Uh, What church were you just in before visiting this one? I've even asked people if they would share with me their ecclesiastical resume. Where you been, what you did. Of course, we shouldn't be too quick to pigeonhole people. We shouldn't think that we know someone inside and out by merely a few questions. But it is true that where we've come from is no small part of who we are. The book of Genesis tells us where we've all come from. It tells us our shared story as humanity. It tells us why things are the way they are in this world. It tells us what's wrong with this world and what's wrong with us. And it also shows us the seedlings of of hope and promise for a fallen world. It tells us not only the beginnings of creation, but it also tells us the beginnings of our salvation. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at the story of Noah, Genesis 6 to 9, four chapters. It is the most drawn out of the story so far in the book of Genesis, and so it must be important. It is a story of judgment where God justly poured out his judgment on pervasive and violent sin in the world. It is a story of salvation where God would save one family, and from that one family, he would begin a whole new humanity. It is a story of new beginnings. God was beginning again with one man, Noah, who back in chapter 6 was described like this. He was a man who had favor with God, a righteous man who walked with God. He did all that God commanded him. We read four different times after chapter 6, especially in Noah building the ark in faith, in the face of opposition, over a period of perhaps a hundred years. Of course, Noah wasn't a perfect man. This new beginning is taking place on the other side of the great fall of Genesis 3. God promised to never flood the earth again the same way, precisely because the human heart is evil from its youth. Chapter 8, verse 21. And yet, chapter 9 is hopeful. We saw that last week. It is largely hopeful, where God charges this family to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. 
God makes a covenant with Noah and his offspring and all of creation forever. God will not flood the earth in judgment as long as the earth remains. And he provides the rainbow as this beautiful sign of that covenant. And that's where we left off last week with chapter 9, verse 17, and now we read on. Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Again, we'll cover the end of chapter 9, what I've just read, and the whole of chapter 10 today. We'll get to chapter 10 later on. But let me show you right up front that all of this goes together from chapter 9, verse 18, to the end of chapter 10. It all goes Together, You see in chapter 9, verse 18 and 19, the sons who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 19, these three were the, son, the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth were dispersed. And now look at the end of chapter 10. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. We've got bookends telling us what the whole is about. And of course, right in the middle, chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons born to them after the flood. So this is about Noah his sons, and the nations. It has a central theme and message. But it also has two distinct, very distinct parts to it. You've got the story at the end of chapter 9, and then chapter 10 is really a genealogy of sorts. So you might have wondered, as David McNovich read Luke 3 for us, why are we reading that at this point in the service? Well, there's another genealogy coming. We'll get to that. Two distinct elements to our passage, but they all go together. It's all about the same kind of stuff. I'll need to give more time to the story than to the genealogy, even though it has less text. 
And so if you're taking notes, I've got four headings for you to, to write down, and really three are for the story part, and one is for the genealogy. The first we could call sin and shame. It's a story in chapter 9 which begins in sin and shame. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. It's a story that starts out innocent enough. Noah became a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. Well, that's good. I mean, God once put Adam in a garden and told him to work it. He drank of the wine, it says. That's also fine. Wine in the Bible is often spoken of as one of God's good gifts to be enjoyed. But even in this first verse and a half of our passage, there's already a couple of hints of possible trouble. Noah was a man of the soil. The soil. The Adama is the Hebrew. Sounds like Adam, doesn't it? Because Adam was a man made from the dust. Adama. But also remember that God once cursed the Adama, the soil. It is also to the Adama, the ground, that we go when we die. Noah was a man of that Adama. He planted a vineyard, which reminds us of the garden, which was good until it wasn't. And what was that thing, that object, that moved things from good to bad in the garden? It was the fruit of the vine. And so we read on, and all suspense quickly fades in the second half of verse 21. Noah became drunk and lay uncovered naked in his tent. Now some of the older scholars sought to soften the blow here by suggesting that after a year on the boat, perhaps Noah didn't know what alcohol could do to a person. But Noah was 600 years old. <laughs> he wasn't naive. He was a man who had a vineyard. I don't have a vineyard, never have, but I know that it takes multiple seasons to cultivate one, to get one to be fruitful and useful. Noah was a man who knew what he was doing, and that's why what he did was sin. Just as the Bible speaks to the blessing of wine enjoyed in moderation, it also speaks clearly and forcefully about the dangers of having too much of it. Drunkenness is sin. And it almost always multiplies sins. It leads to other sins. And Noah epitomizes that reality here. His drunkenness multiplies his sins. He's not just a little drunk, he's really, really drunk. He's naked drunk. He lay in his tent inexplicably naked. He was naked and should have been ashamed, 
but he was too drunk to even be ashamed and put on his clothes. It's intentionally reminiscent of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. A man of the soil in a vineyard, tempted by the fruit of the vine, and now he's naked. It's supposed to feel eerily familiar to us. Noah's sin and his shame in chapter 9 is here to prove to us that the disease of sin entered the ark that one day and it came out with Noah and his family. The flood was to be a reset on humanity, but it could not be a final fix for humanity. Noah was God's special instrument for the preservation of humanity, but he was, of course, incapable of providing salvation for humanity. Remember from chapter 5 how Noah's father had such great hopes that his son would be the one to bring relief. Noah's name means rest or relief. His father thought he would be the one to remove the curse, chapter 5, verse 29, which hinted at God's promise before that to Eve in Genesis 3.15, that one day there would be one born of the woman who is the, the, the head crusher of the serpent, the cursed defeater, the salvation of God's people. And Noah was hoped to be that one. He's not that one. That's clear. You'll have to read on in the Bible before we can find that one. And so the story is here to tell us that Noah is not the one. The story is here to tell us that sin will continue to be an issue. And therefore, so will death continue to be an issue. You see that in verse 29. All the days of Noah were 950, and he died. Reminiscent of that refrain from back in chapter 5. The genealogy there says, so-and-so lived so many years, he had this kid, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Because God said, you eat of the tree, and you will surely die. The story at the end of Genesis 9 is here as a cautionary tale for God's people. It shows us that temp temptation is real even for the best of us. Sin is crouching at the door and it desires to overtake you. And that's true not just for Cain back in Genesis 4, but it's also true of the best of God's servants like Noah. Temptation can strike in the most unexpected of times. It struck successfully at Moses, not so much in his youth, not in the 100 years of building the ark in the face of much ridicule, not even in the strange year of living in a boat with your extended family and countless animals. But on the other side of all that, on the other side of trouble, on the other side of trial, in his own vineyard, in his, own, in his old age, 
he fell. Even those who walk with the Lord and who have favor with the Lord, they sometimes sin greatly against their Lord. If you think you stand, take heed lest ye fall. Secondly, it's a story of dishonor and honor. And here we see the two responses to the father's sin and shame from the three brothers. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now some have rather oddly, in my opinion, read into this more than is there. But I think we can take on face value what it says here that Ham, his son, did, even if we don't culturally understand it too easily. He saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers. What Ham did wrong here is easily identified by comparing it to what the other brothers did to remedy the situation. This is what Ham should have done, verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, and they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. You hear the repeated emphasis, which makes clear what was so wrong in Ham's response to Noah's sin and shame. The other two brothers did not look upon their father's nakedness. They went to great lengths to not see. They walked backwards. They covered up his nakedness. So what Ham was doing, apparently, was multiplying his father's shame by looking and by telling. I think it's fair to only slightly read into what he must have been doing. It appears like Ham was amused to see his father's predicament. He left his father naked for the fun of it. It's possible he took his father's garments with him as he exited because it is that garment that Shem and Japheth bring in as they take it in. It's, it's clearer in the Hebrew than it is in the English. And he sought out his brothers to, apparently, to snicker with them, to mock his father. Instead of seeking to reduce his father's shame and cover up his nakedness, he further shamed his father and left him in his nakedness. And thankfully, the other two brothers knew better. If we don't get why the difference between the two, the three brothers' actions is such a big deal, it could be that many of us just didn't grow up in a culture of honor and shame, like the Bible often portrays. I'm sure there are many stories in the Bible where we miss key nuances because the whole honor-shame thing is foreign to us, but it was the air they breathed. Shem and Japheth weren't excusing their father's sin. They weren't being enablers, as we say today. They weren't avoiding confrontation 
sweeping this under the rug, pretending it didn't happen. Those are categories that we are more familiar with today and categories that at times families have to actually wrestle with, no doubt, but they may not be the categories in our passage. This is a culture of honor and shame. This is an honor-shame thing. Or if we still don't get it, if we don't get that this is a big deal, it could be that we don't fully appreciate the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. That you may live long on the earth. That's the rest of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that you may live long on the earth. And the apostle Paul interprets the second half of that commandment like this. He says, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Meaning, life doesn't go well for those who grow up resisting God-given authority. They resist mom and dad. They will resist teachers and the police and bosses. Honor your father and mother is a big deal, kids. You hear me? It's a big deal that it may go well with you. I remember so often when we would discipline our kids. It's painful, right? But we would bring them to this reality in Paul's interpretation of the fifth commandment. This is not going well for you, is it? It doesn't feel good, does it? Honor mom and dad. It'll go well with you. And if we still fail to get why the two different responses of the brothers is so significant, we might be overlooking the theological significance at play in Genesis with these themes of naked shame and covering. Kent Hughes, former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, he says, the sons of Noah are representative of two groups of mankind. Those like Adam and Eve, who with God's help have their nakedness covered. And those like Ham, who make no attempt to cover their nakedness, even shamelessly expose it. Hughes says, this is the great demarcation that divides all of humanity into those who are blessed in that their sins have been covered and those who are cursed because their sins lay uncovered. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered, says Psalm 32. And so Ham's sin is actually the biggest problem in the story. Not Noah's, surprisingly. That's not to minimize Noah's sin, but Ham's sin and its effects remain in view for the rest of the passage. Thirdly, we see blessing and curse. Verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, did you catch this? Canaan is cursed. Canaan is Ham's son. We should have known that something was up back in verse 18 when we're introduced to three 
brothers, and it says Ham was the father of Canaan. Why does it say that? Canaan's not only a son of Ham, he's the fourth son of Ham. And we know why the parentheses exist in verse 18, because Canaan would receive the curse, not his father, Ham. And that would seem unfair. Ham did the sinning, not Canaan. Why curse Canaan? Well, in short, we don't know. The passage doesn't fully explain that. Perhaps among his siblings, Canaan was the most like his father. And no one knew it. Regardless of why it was Canaan, in retrospect, in retrospect, it's quite clear what the purpose of this curse and blessings are in the grand story of the Bible. Think of how this passage, this and the genealogy of chapter 10 as well, as we'll see, how it would serve the first readers, the first audience of the book of Genesis. While the stories of Genesis may have been on the lips of the Israelites long before, it was in Moses' day. The Bible insists it was Moses who put down those stories in print. Likely at the end of his life, as the people of Israel were about to enter the land that God had been promising them, Moses wrote down these stories, first and foremost, for that first audience. And each story serves them particularly in special ways. Again, they were about to enter the land. What land? The land of Canaan, right? Who were the people in the land of Canaan that they would soon face off against in battle? They were the Canaanites, those who came from their forefather, Canaan, the grandson of Noah. So the people of Israel, on the cusp of the promised land, when the people in Canaan seemed like giants in the land, and the Israelites just like grasshoppers, they would be served to know that the people they're about to face off against have been wicked for a very long time, and they have been under a curse since the days of Noah. God was doing a couple of things in Israel's conquest of the land. He was bringing judgment upon a wicked people, the Canaanites. And he was also bringing his people into a gift of a plush land for which they did not work or they did not earn. It was an inheritance and a place of God's presence. And the seedlings of that coming judgment, you can read about it in the book of Joshua. And the seedlings of that inheritance of the land, they all lay here in Genesis 9. But look at it again, verse 25 to 27. See these 
two blessings and a curse. The, the Lord of Shem, the Lord, the God of Shem would be blessed, verse 26. Japheth would be enlarged, it says, as he, notice this, by extension, he dwells in the tents of Shem and Canaan. As for his line, he'll reside under a curse and he will serve the other brothers' lines. How will he serve them? Well, not as slave owners tried to argue in the antebellum south of our country. They said that people of dark skin come from Ham and Canaan. And so it was God's plan since Genesis 9 that those people would always be servants or slaves. That is sick. And it is a ridiculous interpretation of this passage on, on so many levels, not least because I'm guessing that among the three brothers and their immediate sons, the skin color didn't vary that much. I mean, how do you pick out the dark one? You know, a much simpler explanation that Canaan would serve his brothers is that Canaan and his line would be those who would relinquish the land eventually. By force, yes, but they would relinquish the promised land to the brothers. And so now we come to chapter 10. And here we move from the promises and curse of Noah's offspring in chapter 9 to see how it actually played out in generations later on the world's stage. We can call this, and this is the fourth point, from sons to nations. From sons to nations. It's also called the table of nations, where in chapter 10, 70 different people, nations, or places are referenced. As you look down in your Bibles, notice it is a genealogy of sorts, but not like a genealogy of chapter 5 or like we'll see next week in chapter 11, which both move successively and predictably from one generation to the next generation. Now, Genesis 10, our passage, is more of a smattering of names and peoples and nations and territories, and it is an explanation for how nations and peoples all came from these three brothers, the sons of Noah. So I won't read the whole of chapter 10 straight through. I'm not as brave as David McNovich is. But again, look down in your Bibles and let's try to get a lay of the land first and then I'm going to suggest some themes for us to identify from this curious chapter. The lay of the land. Notice the book ends again. Chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And here's the key. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 
Notice also the three-part structure. You can see this just at a glance. Verse 2 begins, the sons of Japheth, colon. Verse 6 begins, the sons of Ham, colon. And then verse 21, to Shem also, and who he fathered follows that. Notice Canaan, verse 15, is separated out. He's one of the sons of Ham. He's the fourth son of Ham. But he really gets his own paragraph, we could say, because God was, uh, he was under a curse given by Noah in chapter 9. And he deserves careful attention here. That's the structure. Notice also part of the structure, the refrain in each of these sections, the ending of each of the sections. Notice verse 5. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. And then verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then finally, verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Here's the structure and the emphasis. But who are these people? What are these places? Let me give you a quick thumbnail sketch. Japheth's people, verses two to five, they are those who moved north, and east from Mount Ararat. And the names and the places listed there may be most unfamiliar to most of us, but scholars tell us that these list places that would later become known as Germany, Russia, India, Greece, in other words, modern-day Europe. We today might call these kinds of people, Gentiles. Japheth's people were Gentiles. From Ham and his son Cush, verse 6 and following, you get Babel, Nineveh, Assyria, Egypt. And from Ham and his son Canaan, verses 15 and following, you get the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites. In other words, the Canaanites, all the ites, even the mosquito bites. <laughs> Every time I come to these ites, I say I'm not going to do that, and then I do it. I can't help it. Those are the people that God would soon, in the book of Genesis, tell Abraham you're going to inherit their land. You can read Genesis 15 later on your own. Verse 18, God says you're going to have their land from this river to that river, the land of all the ites. And that just keeps getting repeated in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. And here it is, right at the beginning. As for Shem and the Shemites, well, they are Shemites. They are Semites. They are Semitic people. Does that ring a bell? To be anti-Semitic is anti-Jewish? These are the Jews. Notice it says, verse 21, these are the children of 
Eber. Eber is a word from which we later get the word Hebrew. These are the Hebrews. So let's piece this together. Don't forget, chapter 9, remember, verse 25, cursed be Canaan and all the ites that come from him. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, the God of the Shemites, the Semites, the Hebrews, the Jews. Verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth, the Gentiles. How? Let them dwell in the tents of Shem. So Genesis 10 fleshes out the curse and blessings at the end of chapter 9. Genesis 10 also prepares us for the Tower of Babel, which we'll see next week in chapter 11. Genesis 10 provides its first readers with encouragement about God's plans for peoples and places, plans that go back long ago to the days of Noah. And Genesis 10 actually lays the groundwork for God's blessings, yes, to the Hebrews, but also through the Hebrews to the nations. That's the lay of the land. Now let me suggest four themes from this chapter as I wrap this up. Four themes that I want us to take note of and also seek to apply on our own later in community groups or as a family. The first theme is this, unity. Unity. The unity of humanity. Let's start with the most obvious. We'll get to diversity, but start with humanity. After the flood, all of humanity comes from one family. So despite our differences of skin color and ethnic origin and geographic heritage, we all come from one family. We are all related. There is but one human race. It was racists who came up with the idea of referring to a black race or a white race. We Christians should speak of ethnicities, skin color, different languages, cultures even. But we are one. We are one race. The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching to the Areopagus, in Acts 17, says that God made from one man, Noah, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So not to minimize the differences, but isn't there a time and a place, and maybe we would get some traction with so-called racial tensions these days if we just a little bit more started seeing all human beings, every human being, as not only made in God's image, but family, we share DNA. We actually have a shared story if we go back to the beginning. Unity. A second theme, I've got three words for the second theme, multiplication, dispersion, and diversity. Multiplication, by that I mean that Genesis 10, of course, shows us people multiplied. 
on the face of the earth. Just like God told Noah and his family to do back in chapter 9. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth. Multiply in it. That's what we see in Genesis 10. People. People all over the place. We see people who are dispersed. Notice the repetition of the words spread and dispersed and territory that is extended and they spread abroad. And though unified as a human race, Genesis 10 represents a whole lot of diversity as well. Again, there are 70 different nations or peoples or places referenced in Genesis 10. That's not an exhaustive list, but it represents most peoples and places and nation states on the world. It's a family tree on a geopolitical level. There are different peoples, different places, different histories, different stories, different experiences, different people. And some have been better than others, but difference isn't what makes any of them bad. God intended for us to spread out, multiply, and be different. Remember that refrain? Verse 5, verse 20, verse 31. These are the sons of fill in the blank by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. A fourfold description of the world. Just like you see in Revelation 5, when John, the revelator, when he got a glimpse of heaven's worship, he saw a multitude which no man can number from every tribe and language and people and nation. There's beauty in the diversity. And there's unity that comes in Jesus with this diversity. A third theme is promised offspring. Promised offspring. Again, we've hinted at this already, but we're looking for the one. Ever since Genesis 3.15, God's people should be on the look for the one who is the serpent-crushing seed of the woman who will overturn the curse and redeem God's people. In Genesis 4, Eve was wondering whether her firstborn was it. He turned out to be a murderer. And so she thought maybe her secondborn, really thirdborn, Seth, would be the one. It wasn't him, but it is in his line. We mentioned Noah's father was hopeful. Perhaps he'll be the one. And he wasn't. But here in chapter 9, verse 26... Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And Luke 3 gives us a genealogy that runs from Jesus through David and Abraham to Shem and Noah all the way back to the first couple, Adam and Eve. In Matthew 11, I love it when the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they say, are you the one or shall we wait for another? Are you the one 
They're waiting for the one. There have been all kinds of imposters who came before. Jesus says, you tell John what you see. The lame walk, the dead rise, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. I'm the one. He is the one. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the answer. Jesus is the promised offspring. A fourth theme related is is this hope for the nations. Related to the promised offspring is hope for the nations. Not just not just for Shemites, but for Japhethites like me. Not those who were born into promises, but those who receive them by faith. And really, that's the only way we can receive these promises at all. Eventually, ethnicity that's happening in our passage gives way to just this fork in the road. By faith, Have you attached yourself to Christ, the perfect Shemite, the perfect Hebrew? Because in his tent, there is blessing. There are blessings, even for Hamites and Canaanites. Isn't that great? Remember Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite, and she got in. She pitched her tent with God's people and more importantly, with their God. Have you pitched your tent with Jesus? In John chapter 12, a Greek seeks to follow Jesus, but this is kind of a new thing because this Jesus thing has been mostly a Jewish thing and the disciples don't know quite what to do with this Greek who would follow Jesus. They talk about it among themselves and they go to Jesus himself, and they say, this Greek would follow you. And that's when Jesus says, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men, all kinds of people to myself. That's what he's done. And now, Galatians 3 tells us, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. How? Well, Revelation 5. He ransomed that multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and language and people. He ransomed them with his blood. And in Revelation 7, another glimpse into heaven's worship shows a multitude there who are in white robes, covered. Their nakedness is covered. So that's the gospel. That's what Christians come to believe. That is our hope and our only hope. And that's what we hold out to you if you're not yet a Christian. If you're not yet a Christian, I invite you to let the Bible tell you where you came from and what the problem is and where there's hope. I invite you to let the Bible tell you 
what God is up to and what this world is all about and where it all has come from. We're in an age that's obsessed with our particular identities. The Bible holds out something that for you may not feel quite as special. What, we're just all the same? We all got the same problem? One solution for us all? Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that kind of divine simplicity any day of the week. You are special, but you're special because God has a glorious plan that's so much bigger than any of us. And Jesus is at the center of it. And we get in with God through him and we're in for good. And news of that has to spread. It's got to get out there. It, it hasn't yet reached all of the nations and tribes and tongues and languages. And so we call that mission the Great Commission. Jesus gives us a commission at the end of Matthew and the end of Luke, the end of John. He gives us a great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, this has been a bit of a dizzying morning for all of us, I'm sure. It has been a dizzying week for me as I spent time in this crazy story, in this curious genealogy, and so I simplify it for you with help of my pastor friend in Chicago, Dave Helm. I was blessed to listen to his sermon on Genesis 10, and here's his outline, and you'll want Dave Helm as your pastor after you hear this. From one man, all nations have come. To one man, the, all the nations must come. And so, to all the nations, we must go. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your powerful word. You have, this morning, answered our prayers to show us Christ. Your word shows us Christ. We long for the day when Christ finishes all that he has started. We long for the day when all of his people are brought in and covered in robes. We long for the day when Jesus comes again. Lord Jesus, come. Until then, give us a song. Give us a message. Give us hope and endurance as we look to you. In your name we pray. Amen.